Hello, how are you? I'm well, how are you? Let me just shut the door. How's it going? It's going pretty good. How's it going? How, how's your day been so far? Uh, extremely busy. <laughs> you know, gotcha. busy gotcha. day. Um, gotcha. Let me just pronounce your name. Is it Dratavius? Yes. Dratavius. Okay, great. I'm all set. And my last name is pronounced Cozine. Okay, okay. Got you, Cozine. Okay, sounds good. Sounds good. Awesome. All right. So you um anything off limits that you don't want me to ask you? No. <laughs> okay. Sounds good. I just want to um clarify because I know some people may, I don't know, things may get I don't know if I might ask anything too personal. So that's that's why I asked. So All right. Well, we'll do what we do and see where it goes. All right. Sounds good. Well, let's go ahead and get started. All right. Welcome to the Schoolhouse Podcast, where it is is jumping. The objective of this Schoolhouse Podcast is to provide a safe place for educators. And today I have a guest and I will allow her to introduce her name, her credentials, and pretty much, yeah, so... All right, well, Dratavius, I am so pleased to be with you today. My name is Dr. Donna Marie Cozine. I am an author, a speaker, a podcast coach, a podcast host myself of the Joyful Educational Leadership Podcast. I have served as a teacher, administrator, and founder of my very own school. So if it's a job in education, I probably have done it, and I'm excited to be with you tonight. Oh wow! So you—that's um, interesting because I did do some a little bit of research about you, but I did not run across you. Um, you you founded a school. That's pretty interesting. Okay, yeah. okay. So we're gonna we're going to have a, a good little episode today. All right. So why why did you choose um, education as your as your major in school? That's that's a great question. It it wasn't my major. My major okay. was my major was social science. Um, I wanted to go to law school. I wanted to be a lawyer. And my mother kept saying, um, "You should have education as something to fall back on. Something to fall back on." And I was like, "Well, I don't want to fall back on anything, but okay." So I got a minor in education with a social science major, uh, which enabled me to teach um, in New York social studies grades seven through twelve. And I was preparing for my LSATs and, and doing all of that. And I had a class called Methods of Teaching Social Studies. And while we were in that class, the professor was also teaching a 100 level European history class. And I said, you know, how about I teach, how about we teach one of your classes instead of just, you know, doing it on paper? How about we actually get in front of a group of students and actually deliver a lesson? He said, sure. And that was it. That was the turning point for me. I knew at that point I wanted to be a teacher. I loved teaching. I loved uh, being in front of students and seeing the light bulbs go on. So I started teaching at 20 years old. I was a seventh and eighth grade social studies teacher in Rockland County, New York. And I did that for eight years. Um, year seven, I got my doctorate. Uh, taught one more year after I got my doctorate and then left teaching and went into administration. Okay, nice. And um, what did you get your doc, 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 doctorate degree in? 
My doctoral degree is in uh, educational administration and supervision, and I have a master's degree in social studies education. Got you, got you. So, what? How was how how was your first year of teaching? How was your first year of teaching? If you can reflect back on what are some of the growing pains that you um, experienced, and what are some of the successes that you had during your first year of teaching? I think that is such an important important question um, for, because I know you're a, you're an aspiring educator yourself. You know, my biggest fear when I was a new teacher was not knowing the answer to something. Um, You know, what if the kids asked me something and I didn't know? And my mother was an educator and she said, listen, your first year of teaching, as long as you're, you know, a week, you'll be fine. And that was not a good feeling for me because I really wanted to be prepared, but I realized like, I can't plan weeks in advance because I have to teach and see if, and assess it and see if the kids understood it. And do I need to reteach or do I need to, you know, do a different uh, type of teaching or different projects? So the first year I just gave myself grace to know that I wasn't going to be perfect. And there was a lot of learning to do. I had an amazing department chair. His name is Ed Feldstein. I wrote about him in one of the chapters of my first book, So you want to be a superintendent, become the leader you were meant to be. And he really believed in me, regardless of whether or not I believed in myself. He was a big cheerleader. He would come in and say, what are you doing today? And um, he was just fantastic. And I was very lucky to have him as a mentor that first year. Mm, mm. Okay. So like being afraid um, or, or, or yes, not having it having it all together. Has there ever been a time where a student did ask you a question that you did? Sure thing. Of course, (laughs) you Mm. know, kids ask all sorts of questions and I would, you know, in the beginning I would say, great question. Why don't you go home tonight and, and find the answer and you can get extra credit tomorrow. I wouldn't admit that I didn't know it. As time went on, I became more, um, you know, more confident in myself, I realized I don't need to know everything. No one, Mm -hmm. no one person knows everything. And I would say to the student, um, you know, that's a really great question. I actually don't know the answer to that. I've never thought about that, but Hey, Mm -hmm. if you want, why don't you do me a favor, do some research tonight and let us know about it. tomorrow. Um, You know, a lot of things that we worry about as new teachers or even new administrators is how people are going to perceive us. And some of that is really just insecurity, being insecure in terms of worrying that we're going to think that we know what we're doing. Uh, we call that imposter syndrome. You know, people think, well, why does she think she could be this teacher? She doesn't even know what she's talking about. But once you realize that we're, we all have things that we need to learn and know, um, and, and you just give yourself, like I said, that great forgiveness to make mistakes and not know things. It uh, it gives you some some real freedom for sure. Right, right. Got you, got you. And <clears throat> during your during your teaching experience, what was that one student? If you could tell a story, what was the one student that was struggling, or maybe you had some doubts or concerns about, but that student ended up, you know passing a a test or they end up going to the next grade. Do you have any stories? Yeah, 
you know, I'll tell you what, for all the people who are out there who are thinking about becoming teachers or you're a new teacher, you know, the relationships that you have with children are more important than anything else. Um, you know, they might not remember what you taught them, but they're going to remember how you treated them. You know, a simple example, something just happened recently. Um, my family has a property in Fort Myers, Florida, and it was completely destroyed by Hurricane Ian. And I have a former student who lives in Florida and she was communicating with me, texting me and saying, you know, Donna Marie, I can be there in an hour to help you. And this is someone that I taught when I was 20 years old and she was 13, you know, so like I have obviously had an impact on people over time. But I think this one experience, I, I should probably look the guy up now and tell him about it. I had a, a student by the name of Brad and um in between his seventh and eighth grade year, he was away at baseball camp and his father had a cardiac arrest and he performed CPR on him. And unfortunately he passed away. And um, the only person he wanted to talk to was me. And wow. Brad wound up having a really nice relationship, um, you know, into until he went to college, I guess, until I moved away, he and I stayed in touch with each other. I was friends with his family and his you know, younger sister and younger brother. And realizing that that was an impact that I had on him, that in his darkest days, the adult that he wanted to speak with was me. And for me, that meant more for me than, you know, somebody who might not have had, you know, the best grades and, and came through because relationships are really what matters um, and the way that you make children feel and young adults feel and the impact you have on their life is far more important than, you know, a grade on a test. Hmm. Wow. That's some good stuff that you shared, some good information. And so, yeah, I know that you mentioned that you were teaching for a good seven years, correct? That is, uh, eight years, I believe. Eight, eight years. Yep. But you decided to make that transition to administration. Yes. How, how was that transition for you and what inspired you to make that transition? When I was um, a middle school teacher, I worked in a district where they, all of my colleagues encouraged us to do this thing called going across the pay scale. So in the district where I was, you would, you would make more money the more education you had. So um, everyone would try and get to a master's degree plus 60 credits as soon as they possibly could because then you're making more money quickly. And as we know, in education, we don't get into it for the money. So if we can increase our bottom line quickly, that would be great. So I decided after I got my master's, I was going to do master's plus 60, but I found a doctoral program, which was a little bit more than 60 credits. And I figured, well, I'll get a doctorate instead of a master's. And I wasn't sure I was going to go into administration. My major at first was... Um, curriculum and instruction, but then I switched it to administration and supervision. And I remember having a conversation with my mom, who at the time was a building principal. And I said, you know, I really love impacting the life of the 130 students that I teach because I taught five classes with 30 kids in each around. And um, she said to me, you're right, you do impact those students. But if you not when you are a building leader, you impact the lives of every child in that school. And I thought, wow, that really, that's right. You know, you do impact the culture of the school and impact the experience of the kids. So after I did receive my doctorate, I decided to stay teaching for one more year, you know, just to 
really love it and not be going to graduate school and all of that. And then I decided to apply for an assistant principalship. Now, as you know, I mentioned I started teaching at 20, which is pretty young. Well, I became an assistant principal at 27. So again, I went through that imposter syndrome of here I am in a district where I'm supervising people who have been teaching longer, some of them longer than I've been alive. And there came that feeling of, you know, what if they don't think I'm good enough? Or what if I'm not good mm-hmm. enough? And they went through all of that all over again. Um, mm-hmm. And I stayed in that position for three years. And then I became a principal at the age of 30. And then I founded my own school uh, at 40. Got you, got you. So in that leadership position, if you can kind of explain what is the big, what was the shift? Like, what's the what's the mindset difference between being a teacher and being an administrator, like being a leader of of a school, you know, versus you just having to, I guess, be a leader. Uh, I mean, to your students, but now like you like you're like you said, you know, you're a leader to the whole school so like how was that experience outside of you know thinking that you're not good enough were there any other challenges that you faced as an administrator I mean as an administrator yeah so let me give you an example so when you're a classroom teacher right you worry about your students you worry about you know if you if you're an elementary teacher you have one class of 30 kids but if you're a secondary middle or high school teacher you have you teach over 100 kids each day right so you worry about those kids But when you're a principal of a school or an administrator in a school, you worry about all the kids and you worry about all the teachers and, you know, you're the people that you worry about and are concerned about. It just grows exponentially. And and the other big difference is when you're in the classroom, you understand what's happening in your little classroom. But when you're an administrator, you need to make decisions based on what's happening in all the classrooms, what's happening programmatically. So for instance, let's say, um, I'll I'll give an example. I'm making this up right off the top of my head, so bear with me. So let's say that a a school has a block schedule, block scheduling, which is, you know, the teachers teach the classes for 90 minutes. And we've been doing it for three years, and we're noticing that only the social studies teacher really understands, teachers really understand how to teach in a block schedule. They understand that every 20 minutes you need to be doing something different. And all the other teachers seem to be teaching in a way where it's just like they teach a lesson, then they take a break and they teach another lesson. So they're not capitalizing on the block the block scheduling. And we've done professional development and we're just not seeing a change and we're realizing that we're not getting the benefits out of block scheduling. A social studies teacher will say we should stick with block scheduling because in a social in the social studies classrooms it's working. But if you look programmatically as a building leader and you see that okay, it's only working in social studies and it's not working anywhere else and every intervention we've tried to to do to improve it has failed, then we need to move away from block scheduling. Mm-hmm. But those people in those classrooms they don't know that it's failing in other areas or they don't know that student data is showing that block scheduling isn't working. They just know what they know. So that's the big difference. You have to make decisions for the entire school community based on evidence and data and information from the entire school community. And teachers don't really understand that. And and what happens is, and it's not their fault, they don't have access to all of that information. And what happens is oftentimes, I shouldn't say oftentimes, sometimes 
when administrators make decisions, sometimes we can't share all of the information as to why. Mm-hmm. And then people will, you know, question us and how could you do that? And, and some of the information that we use is confidential and we can't use that, you know, we can't tell that information. So, you know, a lot of what we do as leaders, we, the first thing we have to do is build trust and relationships with our people. So they understand, you know what, when Dr. Kozan made this decision, you know, she's always made decisions based on what's best for children. I'm going to give her the benefit of the doubt, even though she told us she can't tell us why I'm going to give her the benefit of the doubt because all of the other times when she could share information, she did, you know, and I think that that's the biggest difference is that you have to make decisions based on the entire population and not just the students who are sitting in front of you in the classroom. Mm, wow. That I've asked that question a lot of times, but I never heard it from that perspective. So let me ask you this based on the decisions that you had to make. Has it, have you ever felt uncomfortable or where you feel like, man, you know, I might make a few, few of my uh, coworkers or teachers upset with me or has anybody ever left or said, or say, man, you know what? I don't like the way that this is going. So I'm out of here or, or go to a different school. Have you ever felt that when you had to make those, those decisions, big decisions? I think the best way to answer that is to first tell you, I'm so sorry. I just dropped something. Um, tell you how I make decisions. Okay. So every leadership decision I make, um, and I learned this from a previous superintendent. His name was Roger Bearsdorfer. He hired me as an assistant principal. When we talked about decision making, he said, you know, I believe the first people we need to think about in our decisions are the students. What's best for students? Second is what's best for their families. Third is mm-hmm. what's best for the teachers. And last, what's best for me as a leader. And when I realized that every decision I make has to be about what's best for children, I became very clear on decisions I needed to make. And it's not that I didn't care what other people said. I knew that other people were responding because they were not thinking about what was best for students. They were thinking about what's best for teachers or what's best for the school district. But really, if not for the students, we wouldn't have a school or a school district. And I'm currently um, coaching a superintendent who actually used to work for me. She worked um, she worked underneath me when I was a superintendent. And she said that one of the things that sticks with her is when we would be sitting around the table and someone would bring an issue, I would say, pause for a second. Here's my question. Mm. Are we trying to solve a student problem or are we trying to solve an adult problem. And if we're trying to solve a a student problem, then we need to focus on the student and not focus on what's best for teachers. You know, we want our teachers to be happy, right? Of course, I want my teachers to be happy and feel supported. But if what a teacher wants is completely the opposite of what's best for children, then the teacher's not going to get what he or she wants. And I've had to lay people off because I've, I've switched programs but, and it was very unfortunate that those people had to get laid off, but the program that they were supervising was replaced by a better program that they were not qualified to run. So mm-hmm. those are decisions that leaders have to make and leadership takes guts and it yeah. takes courage. Wow. 
you know what's funny because in all transparency when i when you break it down like that it's like man when you're when you are a leader you know and you're responsible for a whole entire school you have to make those uncomfortable decisions and you kind of broke it you have to make those uncomfortable decisions knowing that it may make some people upset but you're doing what's best for the students and it's like you had this whole decision process on okay here's the like um lineup on how i make my decisions you know so i just thought that was pretty um pretty inspiring you know just to say one more thing about that is that what I say to people is if you can look yourself in the, in the mirror in the morning and say, I made a decision that was best for kids at the end of the day, then, you know, haters are going to hate and they're going to say what they, they will about you. But mm -hmm. we're in this business for the children, right? Mm -hmm. We're in this business to make sure children get the, their best outcomes. And we can't, that can't happen if we're not making decisions upon which their best interest is, you know, the outcome we're looking for. Hmm. Hmm. Good stuff. Good stuff. And I know we have a few more minutes left. I wanted to kind of transition into now you have a, a education consulting business. Yeah. Can you, I know that you kind of mentioned briefly about how you're coaching a superintendent right now. How did you, make that transition from are you are you full-time by any chance are you yeah so i i have my own company so okay. i'm as full-time as i want to be you know depending on my workload the decision that i made was to leave the school that i founded my children attended the school from let me just give you a quick background okay um, I live outside of rochester new york rochester new york is one of the worst school districts in new it is the worst in New York state. And some would say one of the worst in the country. And back in 2012, I decided that I wanted children and families in this area to have a choice of a school to attend. And so I started this charter school and my daughter attended and she was four years old in kindergarten. And the majority of our students came from the city of Rochester. We had 94% free and reduced lunch, 87% children of color, or actually more than that, 94% children of color. And um, we created this amazing program that my children were ben benefited from. So when my daughter was in kindergarten, she was there from kindergarten through sixth grade. I knew when she left to go to middle school, I wanted to be more available to her. And um, her brother would do well in any school. And he was okay with you know leaving the school at third grade. So my husband and I made a decision that I was going to retire from that position at in my when my daughter left sixth grade. So she transitioned to a new school. My son left the charter school, wound up skipping a grade, going to the public school because he was so advanced. And I started this consulting business. And it's been wonderful. I'm able to provide support to individual leaders who may feel they need support. Um, I work with school districts or larger organizations where I work with the superintendent and their leadership team. And I absolutely love the work because I'm able to become parts of the school community and be able to come in with a fresh set of eyes. What happens sometimes is when you're in an organization and you're dealing with certain things, um, you kind of get 
tunnel vision, right? You, you only see what's in front of you. And, and sometimes you don't see all of the opportunities that obstacles create. And I had this amazing opportunity to go in and say to people, yeah, that sounds really challenging, but hey, let's think about how we can tackle it. And one of the things that I feel is so very important and what I work specifically with leaders and, and all the leaders that I work with, I focus on this, but I, definitely with female leaders is the understanding that, you know, our job is, you know, we work all day and serve people all day, but we also have these families at home that we're also the superintendents of, you know, hmm. we have our families and, and all of these other things. And that was something that in my story was sacrificing my was sacrificed. My husband said to me, Hey, listen, the kids and I didn't sign up for this. And I was like, didn't sign up for what, what a credit card. And I'm like, like, no, 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 this life right now, we didn't sign up for this. So I knew I needed to make some changes and I did. And I, um, and that's the, the basis of my first book. So you want to be a superintendent, become the leader you're meant to be. It outlines my driver system for leadership development. I will give you a uh, link for your listeners. They can download a free book. And then my second book is um, Happy Teachers, Joyful Students, Engaged Families, a plan for building school community that works. And I wrote that book in the middle of the pandemic. I realized like, everything that was going on, but still I had this amazingly joyful school. And the whole reason I founded that school was to make sure that children had joy. And I know we don't have a lot of time, but the stories of me founding that school are, are interwoven in those two books that your listeners can certainly um, download free copies of. Okay. And I will definitely um, make sure I put that information in the, um, in my, in the description once I release this episode, because you said you mentioned that you wrote a book during COVID and it was actually, that was one of the reasons why I started the podcast because I was, I was seeing a lot of teachers that were like leaving. I mean, yeah. it was going crazy. And I mean, I've always heard like growing up that people, you know, teachers will leave here or there just like any other profession people will leave. But it was really catching my eye. I just kept seeing it on the news, all over social media. People were talking about it, how teachers are just leaving it out the door during the pandemic. So the fact that you wrote a book, you know, during the pandemic just to provide hope was um, that's 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 pretty inspiring because, I mean, education is just it's at a it's at a it's at a it's at a good place and a, and a bad place at the same time, if I would say. Yeah, it's it's really a crossroads. And and the reality is people who want to be in education, we're there because it's our passion. It's our mission, right. you know, and we can't lose sight of that. And the pandemic really put extra pressure on teachers that we had never experienced before and also extra criticism, you know, and you'll hear people say, oh, this is because they closed the schools. We had no choice in closing the schools. Listen, we did what we were told to do. And we went from teaching kids in a brick and mortar to teaching them over a computer overnight. And we did a damn good job. I am proud of how teachers and administrators not only stepped up, but we stepped out and we provided for our children. And anyone who taught or led during that time should be damn proud of themselves of what we did for our children and their families. Mm. But it took a toll on us as educators and leaders, you know, always hearing people bad mouthing us and bashing us and, and, um, you know, here we are 
at home with our own children and we're still working at our dining room tables teaching and our kids are learning in the other in the other room i mean it it didn't the the stress of the pandemic and the working virtually or the working remotely or or whatever it was we felt it viscerally as educators and other people didn't understand that you know i wasn't just i wasn't just home with my children i was home with my children and managing a 9 million dollar budget and 93 people from my dining room table yeah. in my pajamas <laughs> you know so you know it it was uh it was a turning point but i think we're getting back to the point where people are happy that they're back in buildings that things are back to normal that we can start doing things we used to do but um, education has changed where, you know, not just education, but society, Dratavius, has changed, whereas your parents and my parents and even me, I'm, I'm 48, I'll be 49, you know, people from our, our, our whatever group would go to work and they would stay and work there for 30, 40 years. But yeah. that has changed and people are like, wait a minute, I don't have to stay in this place if it's not good for me. And you know, I say that one of the things that the current group of uh, people have right is that they follow their mission and they don't worry about the money or, or things like that. So I don't think people moving from school to school is a bad thing because you want to find a place where that fits you. My right. issue is when they leave and they leave in the middle of the year or they leave a school in the lurch and they can't find someone to replace because that that's what hurts kids, you know, and, and that's that's kind of sometimes hard to hard to stomach when somebody says, well, I'm leaving. Today's my last day. And you're like, well, wait a minute. Who's going to who's going to teach these? Kids? Yeah. Yeah. And I think um, it's, it's funny how you you say that, because you're right. The way society is and in our time and age is that, yeah, people don't I don't really hear people staying at jobs for 20 years, 30 years anymore. I mean, people are staying for a year. Oh, somebody's paying me more over here oh i'm out or i don't like the culture or the environment here they just kind of like you said they just kind of go you know where they feel like you know it's bet what best fits them you know and um and i just don't really see it anymore like people staying on jobs for such a long time and you know honestly for self-preservation that's the right thing you should do you shouldn't stay in a job that's sucking the life out of you because that's going to give you issues other issues mental health issues, um, physical health issues. So, you know, I mean, it, it, there, there's a, there's a happy medium. Right. Um, Cause you don't want people miserable either. You don't want a teacher in front of a classroom. That's just counting the days until he or she can retire because they're not giving the kids the best experience either. Mm-hmm. And man, it was a lot of information that you um, provided today. I just, oh, I want to so thank you. Oh, it's my pleasure. And I know that you work with, uh, or you're, you, um, you're a pre-service teacher yourself, right? You're still in college. Well, actually I was an elementary ed in my oh. major, but I switched over to be a school psychologist. So good for you. That's yeah, still, say, I'm sorry. Say it one more time. I said, that's exciting. Oh yeah. I'm very excited. I'm still in my undergrad right now. I will be a junior in January. So Congratulations. And if you need anything, you just reach out. I know a lot of school psychologists I can hook you up with. Oh, sounds good. And and like I said, thank you once again. I just have one more question for you. What are some of the issues that you feel like are um, that education is facing right now or teachers? 
my gosh. How much time do we have to take this? <laughs> I know I know I wanted to get you off at nine ten because I wanted to be considerate of your time. As right now it's nine oh four. Yeah, so okay, I think that there are a lot of issues. I think the first issue is um honestly I think as educators, we need to do a better job of work-life balance. It's very easy for us. You know, people say, oh, you don't, you know, teachers don't work the summers and this, that, and the other thing. But the teacher's day and the day of educational leaders does not end when the bell rings at the end of the day. And I think one of the things that we have to do is make sure that we're, you know, when I talk to my leaders, I say to them, think of your energy like a watering can. And all day, your energy is in this can and you're watering all of your people. You're making the teachers feel good. You're making the students feel good. And teachers do the same. You're making your students feel good, your colleagues, the families, whatever. And at the end of the day, when it's time to make yourself feel good or your family and you look in, there's no water left in your watering can. And that's what happens to us as educators. We're never, we don't often, and I think it's just because of the type of people that go into the field. We're so quick to give so much of ourselves to other people that we don't invest back in ourselves, whether it's for self-care or whatever it is to make sure that we're being our best selves. And, and, you know, my story that I shared a little bit earlier was that if my family who deserved the very best of me was really only getting what was rest, the rest of me, you know, I would give, give, give all day and I would get home and there would be nothing left. I'd be like, you know, a, a, a wet rag at the end of the day. And I think that's the case for a lot of educators. And I think we have to do a better job of insulating ourselves and making sure that we are protecting our own sovereignty and our own health and wellness so that we can give more to our um, children. And I think the other issue that we're being faced with is, you know, from the COVID pandemic, there was, you know, definitely a lack of learning that happened and it was nobody's fault and teachers did the best that they could, but we're still trying to compare students to data from pre-pandemic. So, you know, the, the benchmark data and we're comparing children to are from years and years when children didn't suffer through a pandemic. And I think we have to understand that our kids went through something that none of us have ever been through before. And we have to say, you know what, our, their trajectory might be a little bit slower, but we can make up that time if we focus on our power standards and we really fill gaps. So I think those are two things. I think one is to look at us as not just professionals, but as people and how best to support our educators that way and make sure that we're investing in ourselves and our own self-care and our own development. And then giving our kids a little time to make up for the losses that we all uh, endured because of the COVID pandemic. Okay, okay. Good stuff, good stuff. And um, thank you. Thank you once again for coming on the Schoolhouse Podcast and sharing your expertise and advocating for teachers about self-care. I really, I really do admire that, you know, because a lot of teachers do, you know, that I've seen, you know, even ones that have made a difference in my life, some of them would just give, 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 and then doesn't have anything left to give to their family. So I think you, you know, mentioning that was a really great point and just about some of your, your process on making decisions and, you know, as a school leader. So um, thank you once again. Thank you once again. Well, thank you. And you, you uh, did not disappoint. The, po the uh, Schoolhouse podcast is jumping. <laughs> 
<laughs> that I was a, a guest and uh, I will share those links with you so your listeners can get free downloads of my two books. Okay. Yeah, definitely. And I will definitely post it in my description for sure. All right. Thanks, Tratavius. And have a great night. All right. You too. Thank you so much. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.